Okay, boss, we're here. Good. Things heavy. Sometimes you gotta teach people a lesson. They don't learn. I was looking over here, boss. Yeah, this is the spot. I dropped it. Whoa, take it easy. I don't want to screw up like last time. I hate digging. What's the matter with you? Ground's hard. See, this is nice. Put a little rock garden over here. Right? Maybe a little gazebo. Put a little water feature over here. Open the bag. Hey, boss, can I plant the peonies this time? Sure, you can plant the peonies. Yeah. What, Tommy, don't break my shoes. You planted them last time. Just dig the hole, please. Whatever, Come I'll on. Dig. I'll dig. They forgot the flowers in there. Yep. You know, I give you guys one job to do. One job, I say pick up the peony. It's not that hard. Good morning. Um, I don't know what that has to do with this morning, but I'll try to work it in somehow. <laughs> My name's AJ, and um, it's good to be with you. I, um, I pastor a church in New York called Trinity Grace, and uh, our, our church is we're a little interesting. We have 12 parishes around the city, and uh, we're all locally led by um, local care and local pastor leadership. And so I pastor our church in Chelsea. And so um, just an honor to be with you again. I feel like I'm uh, part of this family in some weird sort of way. So it's, it's great to come out. And um, my gatherings meet in the evening, so it just works out really well to come out here every once in a while and uh, give Clay a break on his birthday. Um, so let's begin here. Years ago, Japan initiated a post-war ritual for soldiers who were returning home. When the war was over, they, they bring up a soldier. And in front of that soldier, they line up all those who fought with him. And they bless him. They bless him for as long as it takes. And they talk about his sacrifice, or maybe his loyalty, or maybe his service or perhaps his courage, until all that could be said is said. And for, for some of these rituals, it has taken hours to bring a soldier up and for all of his comrades to sit with him and to say, we saw this, we saw this, we saw this, telling stories and honoring that man. And then they tell him he is no longer a soldier and that he's free to take on a new name. Husband, son, father, citizen, employee, neighbor. This ritual was inaugurated as a response to countless post-war suicides in Japan. 
they discovered that many of their military would return home and that they had no identity outside of their badges and outside of their penance. And so they gave them one last honor before they said, and now turn the page and walk into something new. And I think, I think what, what this is speaking to, what this whole ceremony speaks to, is the fact that identity matters. That we live from a place of identity. We live from a source, from a name. And we live that out into the world. And in this text that we're going to study this, this morning, Daniel, an Old Testament prophet, is given a new name. Names are significant. Because names function as these sort of entry points into identity. Like when, when you meet someone, the first piece of information that you typically give about yourself is your name. They're significant. They're the primary lens through which we see the world. And names can be heavy, but names can also be very light. And so what I'm talking about this morning in this introduction is that I'm not talking about the name on your birth certificate necessarily. I'm talking about the identity, the name through which you most closely associate. Writer, student, doctor, wife, husband, drunk, singer, failure, child of God. The name that you primarily wear most closely to you as you are living in life. That we have a name that we live from, a core name, whether we are aware of it or not. And my assumption here this morning is that deep down all of us have either subconsciously named ourselves or somewhere along the course of life we have inherited a name or been branded in such a way that motivates our behavior in life. All autumn I've been studying the book of Daniel and it's this book in the Hebrew Bible otherwise known as the Old Testament. And and what we see is that faithful followers in this book, faithful followers of God, are confronted with temptations all throughout the book. They're confronted with the temptation to bow to gold statues. They're confronted with the temptation to bow before the emperor. They're confronted with the, uh, the prospect of being thrown into a fiery furnace. And they also begin to see visions and dreams to which many of us, when we read something like that, or we hear some like pastor from a different church rock up and teach on books like this, we think, this is why I don't actually read the Bible. Because it's full of these old tales that have nothing to do with modern life. And maybe that's true. But we don't, I mean, we think to ourselves, you know, we don't bow down before overt gold statues. But I would simply submit this morning that our statues are much more subtle. At least mine are. And that we're not actually thrown into the fiery furnace for being faithful, faithful to God, but But what happens in life and where do you go when the temperatures of life really heat up? And it reveals where your worship lies. It reveals what you trust and what you turn to. Many of us don't claim to interpret dreams, but I think we would be surprised to know that God is speaking to us much more readily than we know. That we're going to study this morning this passage in Daniel because I think it speaks greatly toward our names toward our identities, and it's going to lift off the page what this means for this series that you've been in on really beginning to, to, to be good stewards, to be generous, to have 
to live with much, but to love it less. And so I want to talk about eventually and move us toward what it means about cultivating a generous life, which really is, I guess finances is a part of that, but what we're really talking about in the series, my understanding, is beginning to face outward into the world and beginning to ask yourself, what is my life for? Not just what am I going to do with my life, but eventually you begin to be confronted with questions of what is my life for, for society? What is it designed to do? Who is it designed to be with my neighbors, with my workspace, all of those things in my family? And so let's pray as we move toward this text this morning. God, we invite you into this place to speak into our hearts. As Julie said earlier of a text that's just echoing in our heart, would you come and echo in our hearts specific things, Holy Spirit, that you want to whisper to us that are specific to our individual lives? But also we give you permission to to whisper to us as a congregation what you're calling all of these people to toward in society. And so Lord, we need you. We need to hear your voice. Would you take these ancient pages and make them relevant to life today? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. A reading from Daniel 1, the first seven verses. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let Judah fall into his power as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Verse 3, Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. Now let's stop for a second. What's happening here is there's an education piece that's going on. There's a sort of download that's happening. And so, so far what has happened is, is the people of God, the Israelites, have been unfaithful to God. So God lets them live into, their, live into their own sort of autonomy. And they're taken over by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians begin to bring in, they begin to import the best of the Jewish men. And they begin to re-educate them. In other words, they begin indoctrinating Israel's elites with a Babylonian worldview. Because he wants these people, he wants to convert these people to his worldview. That it says to the people of Israel, we have conquered you and we have indoctrinated your elites to continue to, uh, to move forward our, supreme, our, excuse me, our supremacy politically over you as a people. And so the takeaway is this. If you can shape someone's mind, you can redirect their life. I mean, isn't that why we love education? We want to shape minds. That's why you go to college. That's why we raise people in certain institutions, because we want to shape minds. And as we shape minds, it will inform how we want to live, the worldview that we believe. And so that is what's happening in a very sinister level is the Babylonian king is saying, I want to shape their mind because if I can shape their mind, I can redirect their life. Moving into verse 5, the king then assigned them daily portions of royal rations of food and wine, and they were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's courts. Now, if the first part was the takeaway, shape a mind and you can shape a life, the second is this. If you can not just shape someone's mind but you can begin to shape their appetites, what they long for, the things that they find comfort in. 
If you can begin to shape those two, notice in this text, he gives them portions of the royal food and wine. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to bring them in and to give them a whole new life experience that they would become comfortable from the hands of Babylon. And if you can shape someone's mind and you can shape their appetites, you can transform their entire identity. And listen, the advertising industry understands this principle and utilizes it to shape our appetites and do what we think. I mean, Apple's a great example. I don't even know I want half the things they put out. And they put it out. I'm like, oh, I need that. Yes, I need that. That's going to change my life. Who, we, who knew? Who knew we even needed that before, right? Verse 6, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. That their names, what happens, pull up that next graphic if you will. Here are their names. Here's what happens. Their names are shifted. Their core identities are shifted. Now, we don't identify with like our birth certificate name as much as they did in this time. I mean, this was a big deal. Their names are shifted from a Hebrew origin in Yahweh, in God, to a Babylonian origin in all of the gods of Babylonia. And this is a big deal. You've got to understand the idea of the name, like it carried significant meaning. And things are different today. I don't wake up and say, my name is AJ. I got to live out the fullness of my AJ-ness. I don't even know what AJ means, right? So already there's a distance sort of with this text. But listen to this. Daniel's name was God is my judge. Can you imagine walking through life at every moment, at work, at school, with your neighbors, in the car, in traffic, thinking, God is my judge. God, is, God sees me. God evaluates my life. God is challenging all of my assumptions. God is calling me to greater God-likeness. Can you imagine what that would be like? That that is your primary lens in the world through which you see all of the facets of your life. And that's what's happening here. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, let me change your name and instill our Babylonian worldview, even at your identity level. This text has everything to do with identity. So let me ask you this question as we continue forward this morning. What's your name? Like, think about it. Go like deeper than just the surface here. What identity do you primarily associate with? What identity drives you? What's the name? Is it your vocation? Is it, is it being a parent? Is it being a grandparent? What is it that you would say, I think most often through the lens of this name? And sometimes it's names that are given to us, that are wounding, that we live throughout the course of our day and cannot shake. The name that you're thinking most through in life. Now let's think about it in our context. Our culture is not Babylon. That's obvious. Babylon was driven by the forces of like an oppressive totalitarian dictatorship that bent according to the will of Nebuchadnezzar. It was basically uh, Orwell's 1984, if you read that, right? Our culture is very different. Our culture is driven by forces that are much more subversive, forces that are much more subtle, forces that are sort of under the hood, things that we can't really see. It's closer to really Huxley's Brave New World than it is Orwell's 1984, if you're familiar with those resources. I think the way that we are led away from the kingdom of God, 
the way that we are led out of sort of faithfulness to God in our time in the 21st century is most notably through three temptations of market ideology. That the market has shaped us more than Babylon. The market has shaped us more than gold statues. The market is what shapes us every single place we go. And those three names are this, position, prestige, and power. These are the three things in our time that have the deepest grip grip on our life. These are the ways that we're forced to subtly bow down in certain ways that betray loyalty to God. Now, these aren't evil in and of themselves, and I'm going to show you that as we go through. But the way in which we often utilize these three things that the market is constantly putting before us leads us into all sorts of pathways that's really unhelpful for what it means to create a generous life. The first is this, identity through position. Identity through position. I want you to think about this first market ideology. There'll be three of them, as I said, position, prestige, and power. We relate to all of them, but I would assume that we all relate to one of them more than the other two. So be thinking about that as we go along. Which is the one that probably grips my heart the most? Identity through position. This is all about sustaining. This is all about climbing, right? Jockeying to be seen, to be heard, to be felt, to make your mark in life so that you feel like you can finally become someone, right? Climbing sort of ladders in this way, which isn't wrong in of themselves, but we all know people who every time you encounter them, it's like they're candidating for something, right? It's like they're giving some pitch to promote themselves so that you identify their worthiness so that they can climb into bigger sort of stages in life. And the challenge of this, if this is you, especially for those of us like me, that we relate around the idea of achievement, where we always have to have a new project, a new climb, a new status, a new sort of like position that we can move into. The problem with that, I think the challenge that God might whisper to you is, do you believe I have you? Do you believe God has you? In other words, do you have to be sort of your brand executive everywhere you go, always marketing yourself so that you can take the next step? Because underneath the hood, you're doing that because you're thinking, I'm not confident in myself. I need another title. I need another climb. And then I will feel complete right? This is my personality. I'm what's called a three on the Enneagram personality theory, meaning I, I, I just relate to achievement. And if I'm not aware of it, this is what I get sucked into. And everywhere I go, it's like about me being the center of a film and getting people around me to support my cause. And for some of you, that's where you find identity, identity through position. There's another one that I think is really prevalent in our time. It's identity not through position, but through prestige, this has to do with impressing. It has to do with convincing people. It's needing others to validate your legitimacy. So it's not so much about necessarily climbing the ladder. It's more about social circles and emotional cash where you go places and you need people to validate your presence in the room. It's interesting. There's, there's a couple postures in life. There's one posture that you step into a room and you say, here I am, right? How often do you step into a party and your first thought is, here I am. You know people that make the biggest difference in life? Here's how they step into the room. Here you are. That is a totally different way of living life. 
And one of them is birthed out of insecurity. Here I am. Get the party started. Here I am. I have finally arrived. Rally around me. And the other has such a a generosity spirit of here you are. I see you. And I'm here to know about you and to get curious about you and to get curious about what you are up to more than I want you to know about me. It drives us to have to wear the latest fashion despite looming credit card debt, needing the latest gadget, impressing others through name dropping, striving for higher social circles. Another way that this can be construed is identity not just through prestige but possession. When it comes into like the tangible realm, it's when we need the next car, the next upgrade, the next thing all the time in order to reinforce our status in life. Sometimes it's a tangible possession, but often it's emotional. And usually prestige is a social thing. It's a social impressing. Listen to these words by Ronald Rollheiser from his book, Sacred Fire. He says, we, what we hunger for and want to accumulate for ourselves is not so much houses and yachts and fat bank accounts, right? That's, what, that's sort of like low-hanging fruit. We usually go after those things of, of, of those sort of like low-hanging fruits of things that are just obvious. He says, though in honesty, we, we, we love those as well, but rather what we want to accumulate is experience and status and reputation. It, this is what's fed through social media, Look at me. Please be impressed with me. Please know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what I'm eating in this moment, right? Through experience, through status, through reputation. And again, these things aren't like, like wrong in of themselves. It's what's underneath them. He says, more than that, we want people to recognize us for our money. We want them to recognize us for our good name, our achievements, our knowledge. The greed to be known and admired eventually trumps the greed for money. And I think that's true. I think that's probably true for our generation. And I think the challenge that perhaps God might be whispering to your heart this morning, if that's you, is this. Do you believe I love you? Do you believe God loves you? Do you believe that the love of God is all of the identity you really need? And now you can step into rooms and say, I see you. Here you are. Rather than here I am. Everywhere you go. Identity through possession. Identity through prestige. And the last is this, identity through power. Power. And what happens is this, and I see it in New York all the time, is this idea of exploiting and dominating, right? This idea that that we move to a place where the longing is just more and more power. It's never sort of satisfied. I see this a lot in the city I live in in New York because the income gap is just insane. And the evaporating middle class, it's just incredible right now. In American history, it's never been greater. And I don't exactly know what to do about that, but I think it's enough to just know that we're actually moving into a place in life where there's going to be a lot more social injustice and poverty because of that. And I think the church better be ready for that challenge. That if this is the trajectory in which society is going, what does it mean for people of means to say, how can I help? How can I be a part of this? Yes, this is, this is sort of, the trajectory I've taken, and it has served me well, how can I help a world in which so many barely even can pay their bills? How can I be a part of rectifying that in my time? Which I think for those that are drawn to power, I think the whisper, really the caution that God would have over your life is this, do you believe I see you? 
It's like God is my judge, similar to Daniel. It's almost like God is saying, I've given you all of these things. Do you really think you can just do your own thing and that I won't notice? Do not know that I've blessed you in this way to be a blessing. That was my original vision for Israel. And all they did was look inward and they were tribal and they stopped to see that I actually wanted their faithfulness to move into Egypt and into Babylon and into all these other nations for them to say, wow, look how gracious the God of Israel is. We want that. That's how we are called to be in our time. To be thinking, surely God has blessed us for more than just a self-directed life, an insular experience. I think these are the names we're tempted to wear in the market economy. And I think over time, they become our lenses. And what happens with that is over time, they become our life. And like the candle in the room, you can't smell it anymore. And you're not aware that, yeah, we look at, we look at Daniel and say, oh, how silly, he bowed before a gold statue. But quite frankly, our statues, they're just subtle. They're just under the radar to where we can't quite see them, but we are bowing none the less. I think what happens is there's a tendency that as we grow in power, as we grow in prestige, and as we grow in position, which like I said, are not, are not inherently bad things. The thing about New York City is the longer you stay there, and if you're faithful and good at your job, you get rewarded with position. You get rewarded with prestige. You get rewarded with power. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a thing about that that's good. But over time, what can happen if we're not careful is as we are rewarded, our loyalty to God weakens. And I think what God wants to say to us is, as I reward you in life, would you be faithful to the call of, of, of my kingdom? Would you be faithful to the call of justice in society? Would you be faithful to the call that perhaps your power is about more than just you? Perhaps I've given you influence at whatever level to be others directed. Like perhaps that would be helpful. Perhaps that's why God has blessed us. And I want you to look at these forces in our lives. I mean, look at these. It's these forces that keep us from looking outside of ourselves. It's these forces that keep us anxious, fearful, insular, self-directed. And so in this series of living with more and loving it less, I, that title's compelling. It's interesting to me because that title is all about your relationship to what you have, whether it's tangible or intangible. It's all about living with more and loving it less. What's your relationship toward the things of your identity? What's your relationship toward the things in your life? What kind, how do you relate to those things? It's about assessing your life resources and holding them loosely for the glory of God and the good of others. And so I think this has everything to do with our identity. I think this isn't about like, yeah, like this is another like sort of thing in life and be thinking about this. I think generosity, it has to come from within. It has to come from who you are. If not, it's just philanthropy. And there's nothing wrong with philanthropy. But I know a lot of philanthropists that actually aren't changed people. They still function in the ways of the market economy when it relates to power, prestige, and, and sort of position in this way, Right? And what God is interesting is, is saying, if I've blessed you, if I've given you an identity, would you live from that place and be generous like me? This has everything to do with identity. You know, there's a name that Scripture gives you. There's specific names that we have in our life that, that, that the Spirit 
puts on our hearts, right? But there's a general name that we all have when we find grace in Christ. And it's this word. It's this word in the Greek, technon. And it means child or son or daughter. That's the name. And all of the ways in which our society is trying to give you a new name, this is the name God is always trying to pull you back to. That no matter how old you are, the brilliance of life is we never stop being a child of God. There's a freeing aspect to that. And I think for some of us in this place, to get to where Clay and the others are trying to move this church down the road into maturity is that some of you in this place need to receive your name. Listen to this passage in John 1.12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power. I love that. You see, power isn't inherently bad. He gave power to become children of God. That some of you have never come to the place where you have said, I'm tired of trying to earn my name when God has given it for free, for free through Jesus. That I don't have to earn being a child of God. It works differently than the market. I don't have to earn approval. I don't have to earn all these things to become someone. That God has already given me an identity even before I was born. That was my destiny. That's what God had for me. And it frees you into a new place of saying, I can live in this world differently because I've been given an identity. Some of you need to receive your name. And that's as simple and as profound as confessing Christ is Lord and beginning to move into beginning steps of discipleship, of what it means to trust God with your life and to give it over, and to surrender that. And, and for others of us, it's not to receive our name. If you're like me, many of us need to begin believing our name to believe it. In other words, to begin living it out. 1 John 3, 1. See what love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. I love this next part. That is what we are. Not saying that's what we will be. It is what we are. And so believe it. And by believing, we're saying live into that name. Begin to try that on because the market forces call you to achieve your identity. But the gospel of Jesus calls you to receive your identity. That is so different. And it is so freeing. It is so liberating to know that it's not about my acumen. It's not about me making all the right steps. It's not about my college degree. It's not about all of these things and being perfect. It's about receiving the grace of God more and more in my life. That identity is through grace, not through works. And so as we move more and more into this, we become children of God who is father of all. And as we become children, we begin to be like God the Father who, and this is where this series comes into play, who is the most generous reality in all the universe. And when this happens, when we begin to receive and believe that we already have a name and we don't have to get it from others and in society, it transforms the way we experience the temptations of the market right? Position. Position is not a bad thing. When it's transformed, when our, our lives are transformed, it can provide stability in life and authority that you might apply what you're gifted at toward the common good. That climbing the ladder is no longer just about your advancement, but about, about what you're actually going to do through it. 
Let's think about prestige. Prestige can be leveraged. Redeeming prestige meaning, means that you actually have the opportunity to redirect the conversations of your social circles toward initiatives that change lives. That's beautiful to turn prestige in on itself and to say, it's not about me stepping into a room and saying, here I am. What does it mean to come to a room and to say, there's amazing things happening in this town. You should really get involved. Join me as I do this, whether it's some sort of project that, that Renaissance is doing or whatever that might mean. How can we begin to steward and influence our social circles rather than just trying to move and pat our own stats when it comes to friendships and name dropping, etc.? And then power. Power isn't evil. When it's transformed, it becomes influence to shape culture in alignment with the values of God. And so I just think that what's happening here is transformed people can transform these market ideologies into good in the world. It is my understanding as we close, it's my understanding that Renaissance Church exists because a couple people decided to think outside of themselves on behalf of their neighbors who had never really heard the gospel or been in a church that would love, that would support, that it, it would accept them as they are when they arrive. Because it came out of transformed lives that were saying, what if we created a space for people to come experience God in a way that connected with their daily lives? And it came about, you're sitting here as the fruit of people taking these values in the market and turning them on themselves and saying, my life actually is designed to be outward directed when I'm whole in Christ and my identity is settled by grace. My understanding is that the teachings of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, that what you have isn't a problem. It's what you cling to that's the problem. And so may we be people who refuse to cling to the things that are passing away. And may God give you in this Christmas season an imagination that would say, God, speak to my heart and reveal to me all the ways that I'm clutching onto things that you're calling me to simply let go because I don't need them to inform me of who I am. I can let them go and whatever stays is fine and whatever leaves is fine. I want to be a generous person with what you've given me. I want to learn to live with more and to love it less. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time together. We thank you for bringing us together in this intentional space that you would speak to us, not just as individuals, but as, as a community. There's no other time in the week when we all gather together in this room across industries, different, different diversity understandings and perspectives. And so we're here as one to say, Lord, shape us and shape this church for the good of Summit New Jersey and beyond. We thank you so much, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. I believe I'm supposed to say, have a great week. Go in peace, children of God.